This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. They're they're formulating the plan to like pull, pull the pin out of the stage, and it's like the one pin like holding the whole thing together. <laughs> and then he says, "Biggity bam, the motherfuckers rubble." Hence, no game show. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Face. Dude, so many cookies. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got a trillion sitting around. I'm up to 615 million per second. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I'm only at 35 million per second. I think I'm at the end of the game. <laughs> so I assume that the end of the game is when that left pane like fills up with that brown shit that's milk oh that's milk uh it upgrade it's it's so dumb it's normal milk and then it upgrades to chocolate milk and then it upgrades to raspberry milk um oh wow as you get achievements i must have missed that but so i have an upgrade sitting here so i kept the the grandmas get so many upgrades like just constantly throughout the game they just keep getting upgrades and then you you can upgrade like you can get this research center upgrade. <laughs> I know, this is so dumb. You can get this bingo center slash research facility. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, you keep you get like more. It generates more upgrades for grandmas. And I have this upgrade right now, and it's it costs one hundred and sixty million. Wait, one hundred thousand million, one hundred sixty billion cookies. And it's called One Mind, and it gives each grandma gains one base cookie per second for each 50 grandmas. But then it says, in red text below it, it says, note, the grandmothers are growing restless. Do not encourage them. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went to upgrade it last night, I clicked on the upgrade last night, and it was like, are, it popped up an actual alert and was like, are you sure you want to do this? It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sitting there. I'm like, well, I want the other achievements. I don't want to replay. I'm never going to replay this. I'm never going to get back to this point again. So, <laughs> Oh, speaking of grandma upgrades, I just got another one. Oh, they are <laughs> twice as efficient. All right. Oh, my God. This is consuming my life. I know. <laughs> like, it's just been running on my work machine. Constantly? Like, it, like in a tab. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm, like, compiling or something or waiting for, like, a code review. I'm like, oh, back to cookies. <laughs> Doing a little cookie management. <laughs> yeah, I, I have mine open and then I'll forget about it, like, all day. And then at the end of the day, I'll be, like, flipping through my open tabs and I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> I can buy some stuff. So dumb. <laughs> should we put this in the show notes or just leave it a mystery like <laughs> all right yeah we'll put it in the show notes this is the dumbest thing i apologize in advance for everyone <laughs> that gets sucked into this stupid game yeah you're probably meaningfully impacting our gdp right gdp is right. in decline thanks to cookie clicker <laughs> You want to cover some feedback? In this oh, episode? yeah. I we've love been, getting feedback. I think we've been neglecting. Like I've got some emails here from like a month ago. 
<laughs> yeah, just about. First first week of September. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first email that we got back was uh, we got an email from Sean. He was talking all the way back about the testing episode. He said, I found the episode regarding testing very helpful, especially to hear from iOS developers sharing past experience with all these frameworks. Testing is always the weakest and least discussed part of iOS development, particularly acceptance testing. I've recently started using Subliminal and XC tool to you to do end-to-end automated UI testing. It works, but it's not straightforward. Setup is cumbersome, documentation is still lacking, and the library is still a little rough around the edges. We do have to do extra work to get around asynchronous UI events between view controller transitions. Having said that, it does what we need, so I'm fine with that. We'd love to hear more real-world example, uh, real-world experience about the testing side of iOS development. So um, he mentioned using Subliminal for his acceptance testing stuff, and when we did the testing episode. Um, I think I mentioned that there was another framework out there that did basically what Kif does, but that I I could not remember what the name of it was, and that's the framework that I was trying to think of was Subliminal. Um, it's on GitHub, so it's another acceptance test framework in Objective C, but it looks like it's actually wrapping um, UI automation, not doing its own kind of hacky touch synthesis stuff like Kif is doing. And they say that the syntax is a lot like SendTest or OC unit. I feel like the the they have the same main problem that Kif did, which is that yeah, they have the same basic problem that Kif did, which is that it it's it's this big monolithic framework where um it's doing the test running and the and the view, the UI interactions and the uh, assertions all itself, which, like I've said a few times, that I'm, you know, more inclined to use mo- smaller module frameworks than single large monolithic ones. And so I think that that's the main reason that I never really looked into it. The setup is also an enormous pain in the ass it looks like there's no cocoa pods stuff it's just got this you know creating you have to create a secondary target like an uh, you have to duplicate your main target which means now you have to make sure that you remember to add files to both targets and make sure your linking is all set up and that's always kind of a pain in the ass that's one of the worst things about kiff so i don't have much experience with this Although they do have a a CI integrations and stuff, so they have like a they have a runner that you can run from the command line, which is nice. What's the syntax like? How does it relate to Kif? And does it or actually the the, the syntax has recently changed in Kif, right? Because now we have Kif two point Kif next, right? Right. So the the subliminal looks almost exactly like OC unit looks. So you declare your tests like. In a TDD style of like test login succeeds with username and password, and then you do all your setup. Um, they're doing all their setup and grabbing elements out of the view and uh, setting the username and password, and then tapping a button. And then their their assertions look like OC unit or XC test or 
any of those things as well. So it's like SL assert true, SL assert true with timeout, that kind of stuff. So I'm not even a fan of the syntax, <laughs> you know. But yeah, Kif, uh, yeah, jumping back to Kif, I think Kif is actually in an interesting place. Like when we were talking about Kif last time, I was kind of lamenting the fact that it really looked like Square was giving up on it. And I was nervous about the future. And so I was like hesitant to recommend using it. I'm still not 100% on board with like using it as a recommendation, but I was wrong about the end result of them pulling Kif out of the Square organization and creating this organization specifically for Kif. So, so it's now github.com slash kif dash framework slash kif is where kif lives and i thought that was a sign that square was just kind of giving up on it but what it allowed them to actually do is it allowed them to give this guy b nickel whose real name i can't find he's the guy that did all the ios 7 fixes for kif in the first place and they were able to make him give him commit access to the to the uh to the repo so now he's like one of the core maintainers and he's doing a lot of work on it. And one of the main things he he did two main things, honestly. He did he opened it up for CocoaPods. Like he so Kif officially is supported by CocoaPods now, which is awesome. It's been like quote unquote supported by CocoaPods for a while, but Square was never doing anything with that. There was a single um like point zero zero point zero point one version of kif that people would just every now and then go in and update the shah i was pointing at so it's not like it was actually versioned but now he's got an actual cocopod setup that's actually versioned properly and he has a whole um so there's kif 1.x versions which are like the stuff that we both used and then he also now has made this switch officially over so that um, what they were calling Kif dash next is now Kif 2.0 and Kif 2.0 is way, way, way more interesting to me than Kif 1.0 was. It's closer to what I had been talking about, about my like ideal situation where it still does its own assertions and it still does its own view hierarchy lookup and it still does its own touch synthesis. But it's doing that from inside any test runner. So it doesn't need a second um, application target to be running. It doesn't need all the overhead that the other one did. It just runs as a part of a um, inside any OC unit XC test. I think it works with XC test OC unit or XC test KIF or sorry, Kiwi specta whatever kind of test running suite you're using for your unit tests you can also use for your acceptance tests which is much more interesting to me the only problem is it's not backwards compatible right it's using a completely different idiom for doing its tests it's using a pattern called the um the actor pattern do you know much about that uh no i was actor model let's see I was just looking at one of his other projects that's for mocking servers that uses something similar. So the C2 calls the actor's model 
Uh, actors are autonomous and concurrent objects which execute asynchronously. The actor models provide flexible mechanisms for building parallel and distributed software systems. Blah blah blah. Uh, so, <clears throat> so the pattern that they're using, and I think they're essentially forcing for KIF 2.0, is like you create a tester, right? Um, it looks like they're they're doing some some stuff for uh, any OC unit test to add this instance variable called tester just to all the tests. Um, so you create a tester, and the tester represents the user, right? And so you say tester navigate to login page and navigate to login page is a method that you've defined on the tester object that that will go to that specific page and then you'd say tester enter text into view with accessibility label tester tap view with accessibility label right so tester is a stand-in for the user and it's doing operations on the current screen does that make sense yeah but i'm not sure i understand why i'm not sure i understand the distinction of having a tester versus just executing these steps. What's what's the benefit? I, I think it's just a better level of abstraction, or it's more semantic, maybe. Um, so you're talking about like using this, doing it this way versus doing it the old way, right? Where you created scenarios and then those scenarios had steps to them, right? Right. I think it's easier to think about exactly what's actually happening and it the the naming of everything becomes more semantic if you're doing it this way the old way led like it wasn't sure what what object was being was doing these things right it was all class methods and so it was all kind of like there there wasn't there wasn't anything actually performing these actions i think having a tester like a variable named tester that represents the user or the essentially the test driver, right? The thing that's driving the UI. It makes it easier to understand what's going to happen when I read tester navigate to login page versus just a class method that just says steps to navigate to login. You know, it's more of a, it's more of an order. You know what I mean? You're actually saying go to the login page right now. Do the, yes. Do these testers have state? Um, It doesn't look like it has a whole lot of state. B nickel, by the way, is Brian nickel, as I just found in the comment block on this file. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I, I mean, I could sift through all this on air, but that's not incredibly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't so, do that. I mean, I'll, I think we'll probably def, I definitely want to play around with Kif. I think it's more interesting now than it was. I think it's definitely something worth looking at as a potential, solution for acceptance testing but i'm not i'm not super familiar with it so we probably shouldn't waste too much time hypothesizing about it so the assessment here on testing is that subliminal and kif are both these massive frameworks they work but it's not the ideal solution yeah i i think i think kif 2.0 still is from just a few glances kif 2.0 seems like it's closer to, uh, I mean, the ideal would be an Apple supplied Objective C framework that reads like RSpec 
and you know does all the acceptance testing stuff like that would be ideal but that's probably not going to happen uh i think kif 2.0 is closer to what i would consider an ideal setup but it's not there yet maybe hard to tell (laughs) well that sounds pretty definitive (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to say i mean i'm just kind of like looking at a readme in some classes you know i i really i want to play with it more before making a decision on it one way or another i want to play with it at all before making a decision on it one way or another yeah, but it, it at least makes me more excited about where KIF is going and more optimistic right. about, about the future of the framework. Well, there you go, Sean. Testing is not rampant, but it's slowly becoming more and more uh, used in iOS and just Cocoa development in general. Check out KIF. And maybe file radars about getting some uh, like official acceptance testing from Apple. For sure. Let's start an official campaign right here, right now, Gordon. To uh, add Objective-C-based acceptance testing? Yeah, let's file a radar, put it in the show notes, and then just have people dupe it. Could do that. Put it on open radar, too? Yeah. All right. I'll do that later. Be the change you want to see in the (laughs) dev community. (laughs) It'll get filed as duplicate, (laughs) like, five minutes after I post it. At least you tried. I did submit a radar to get um, X uh, to get Vim key bindings <laughs> in Xcode. That one didn't. That's last. never going to happen. That didn't last very long either. <laughs> nope. They're uh, sticking to Emacs. Yeah. All right. So moving on. Um, friend of mine, Eric Price, emailed a uh, local Boston guy. Uh, emailed to say uh, when we were talking about the uh, manual memory management. Nailed it. Yeah, (laughs) nice work. Uh, We're talking about that episode. When we're doing that episode, he he sent an email to uh, re-educate us, I guess is a good word, as to why we were doing um, direct IVAR access in Dialic instead of using the accessors in Dialic. So what he said was, uh, the reason to release slash assign the IVAR to nil directly versus just call the setter with nils because you want to avoid as much as possible calling methods in dialic and init. Um, why? Because if someone has overridden the setter method or is KVOing the property, their code will execute and probably make assumptions about the validity of the state of your object when in fact your object is in a very invalid state because it's partially released at this point. And that's exactly the reason, right? Like as soon as I like I got it on my phone and I read it, I was like, "Oh yeah, right, totally." <laughs> it just <laughs> I blocked that part of you know memory management out of my head for some reason. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, that makes total sense. By the time when you're calling Dialic, the you know parts of the parts of the object have already been released or are about to be released. And especially the KVO thing is dangerous, right? Like if you call self.foo equals nil in your dialic, then it's going to do the um, – it's going to fire off those KVO methods, you know? So if you're watching that property, then you could end up with some weird – Right, because I think when that – so – when that value changes, does that KVO notification fire right away or would it fire at the end of the 
current turn of the run loop. So it's like if it yeah. fired, would it not happen until the end of dialic, meaning that the object watching would then try to access that in some way and would right. end up hitting like something that's been released or Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yep. Do you do you use the uh synthesized setters in, in it though? I haven't been. We don't in my client project, but I'm kind of kind of going back and forth on it. Like I really understand why you shouldn't use like self.foo equals whatever inside the init method, but I'm not totally sold on the reasoning behind it. Yeah. It seems to me that if, if self isn't fully realized at the end of the assignment from the result of calling super, that there's probably like a bigger problem anyway. Right. Right. Plus, but, but even, even beyond that, we're, at least in the in the pattern that you and I use and like we're using on my client and even if you're using the pattern that Apple wants you to use like those like we bail early right so i i do self equals super init if not self return nil yeah like, let's just get out of here um i know you do the same but even if you don't do that and you use the conditional and you say if self equals or if there is a value in self then do all your your stuff. So you're never going to be sending messages to a, a improperly instantiated object. But I think Mike Ash wrote an article that's going to say everything that we could possibly say 10 times smarter. But let's see. So he said he, he wrote an article on um, using accessors in init and dialic. Uh, he says the downside to using accessors is is that accessors can have side effects. Sometimes these side effects are undesirable for init and dialic. When writing a setter, it needs to behave correctly if you're going to write from blah, blah, blah. So he says um, the bit of innocuous-looking code is potentially dangerous. If you have a setter that notifies another object of something and then sets some object. I'm not Which is always a, ba- it's, it's always a bad idea anyway. Right, right, right. I mean... Setters and side effects are the worst. Right, right. That's a smell. Yes. Getters um, and side effects, questionable. Yeah. So I don't know. He kind of says the same thing that we did, but he actually comes down. I, I, I would still say, like, if you are doing manual memory management, like, don't use self in dialic. But he says, uh, he comes down at the end of this and he says that the advantages aren't generally that great and the downsides are minor. Uh, he doesn't use accessors for the majority of his instance variables, which I disagree with. But, or I guess he's talking about in init methods. So I think the main I think the main problem with trying to avoid using accessors in your init methods is that it leads to inconsistent code style. I I always feel like if I'm going to avoid using the accessors, I should probably just avoid using self. But if you really do need to set those things up or if you may end up having an init method and then it calls out to another method to do some like additional. So maybe I've got a nib and the nib can be instantiated through code or it can be instantiated through. No, sorry, a view that can be instantiated through code or it can be instantiated from a view controller, right? Or uh, from a nib, right? So I have a view subclass that could possibly be created from a nib or it can be created from code. 
Um, so you're, ta- you're talking about implementing both init with frame and init with coder. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so then I, I don't want to duplicate that setup. So then I have like a, you know, perform shared initialization kind of method. And then inside there, you'd have to know that those are coming from an init method. So then do you use the accessors inside that method? Because I would lean towards yes, but the I rule do, would say I, no. I do not. And I've been trying to decide for myself what or how I should prefix those methods so that it's immediately clear if you just look at this method in isolation, oh, this thing is called as a result of an, an initializer. It's, it's just in its own method for code organization purposes. And I've actually thought about prefixing those with init, but they're not in the public header. It's just like an init helper. Otherwise, setup, yeah. I think, is like a decent prefix for that. Yeah. You know what I mean about like then your code style depends on – I mean it's kind of temporal coupling, right? I mean it's not coupling, but it's – your code style depends on when that code gets executed, which is kind of weird to me. And I don't think that the the – advantages to not using the accessor at that point outweigh the fact that then you have, you just have to know, you just have to know, like, even if you are naming your method well enough so that like, I can just read the method and know that this is part of an init. It's just like another thing that you have to think about, like, Oh, this is a extension of my init method. So I can't use accessors here. Right. If, if you have a lot to do in your initializer, maybe that's a sign that you should be pulling some of that out into a separate object anyway. Yeah, probably. And, and I do try to use overridden getters to set up things where I can, or if it's, not, if it's not dependent on anything else and can just be created as needed. Yeah, for sure. That's fine. But everything that's left, you know, what do you do with that? Do you just have a big init method? I don't know. I've been, I don't know. I really mm-hmm. don't. I feel like we could have a whole discussion on just on code style. Yeah. So I don't know. I've been going back and forth on using the accessors in init methods. It just doesn't come up in dialic methods that much anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we don't have to deal with that. Like the only time I write a dialic method is to to remove self from the notification center, you know, as an observer. Right. Yeah. That's almost always the only time I implement dialic. Did you, did I send this other email to you? The other one that Eric sent. So he's, so Eric sent another email after any, he, uh, he wanted to correct something that I think I had misspoken about, about I implied that it was probably a good idea to just use weak references inside blocks, weak references to self inside blocks to avoid retain cycles. And he's, he's actually kind of making a, point of that that's it's not actually that simple like i i simplified it a little too much in my head and the main thing that you have to concern the main thing you have to concern about is that is you have to look at it as like a closure so you're saying are there any objects this is quoting him right are there any objects i'm strongly closing over in this block that directly or indirectly own the block so he says stuff like UI view animation blocks, you don't need to use a weak reference to self because self doesn't own the block. Self doesn't own the block at that point. UI view 
is the one performing the block because there's a class method on UI view. So UI view is the owner there, not self. So you can use self inside and it's not a retain cycle because self, cause the block the block owns self, but self doesn't own the block, right? Right. And then the same thing for um, global dispatch queues because self can't own a global dispatch queue. So you don't have to worry about... You don't have to worry about it in there. And he, he actually says that it's it's the same basic concept as, um, you know, delegate objects, um, you know, using the delegate pattern. So never retaining or never having holding on to a strong reference to an object's delegate because that object is almost o- always owned by the delegate. Right. In the case of dispatch keys, if you were managing your own queue, then you would have to c- concern yourself with. Yeah. Yeah, right. if it's if it's your own, if you are if self is owning the thing, then you probably you shouldn't be using self inside that. If self if you are owning the block, then you shouldn't use self inside the block. But if something else owns the block, then it's probably fine. Probably going to get more emails about this one too. <laughs> I hope we do. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I'd love to know more about this. Well, that's good to know. Yes. So thanks to Eric for. Yeah. Correcting us. Always appreciate that. Yeah. We don't like being wrong. He did say at the end, he said, um, he does, he also wishes that the compiler could catch all these cases. Um, but he actually think, you know, after he's pointing all this stuff out, it, it, it becomes obvious that it's a much harder problem than just saying like, replace all instances with self of self inside blocks with weak references to self inside blocks. You know, it's, it's not as, it's not as simplified as I'd made it sound in the first, uh, whenever we were talking about this before. So we have another piece of feedback here from Edward. We were recently talking about UI table view controller and I was mentioning that I, I typically don't use it because I don't feel like it adds a lot and it's restricting having the table view be the, the view controller's view. And Edward says, just listen to the UI table view controller show. I actually do use UI table view controllers a lot based on those advantages you guys mentioned. For example, refresh control, input view awareness over just a UI view controller. In complex views that require more than just a table view, I end up leveraging the containment API and create a container controller and add the UI table view controller as a child view controller. It actually has the advantages of making that UI table view controller more reusable, something I find great since most of the time the UI view controller is the most non-reusable part of my application. I inject the behavior for what should happen when you tap a cell, and basically I can reuse this table view anywhere in the app easily. So this allows me to have a pretty, comp- pretty complex view on an iPad app where I have a container view controller that is managing the communication between its children. I'm really starting to like this pattern as it makes my UI view controller lighter as they're not managing a complex view hierarchy and move towards being more in line with the single responsibility principle. Interested in what you guys think. I think containing a UI table view controller solves exactly the problem that I was talking about, where you have less control over basically the screen of content because the whole controller isn't taking over the entire view. It's just composed together. The thing that makes me uncomfortable about that is that I feel like I end up having to expose more in the public interfaces for my view controllers as a result of being children to like send messages down and to control them. And I'm not sure if there's a better way that I should be handling that. You know, having to expose, say, like a table view on a child view controller so that the parent can work with it in some way. What 
what would the parent have to do with the child view controller? So inside view controller containment, the view will appear, view did load, all that stuff still gets called, correct? Right. So the state of that specific view wouldn't have to, like, it's not like the parent view controller would have to tell the child view controller's table view to reload the data, for example. Right, but if if you did want the child to respond to something in some way, you would just then have to expose a method on the child that turns right around and communicates with its own internal table view. I don't hate that. <laughs> I mean, that kind of so- sounds like it's what that object needs to do, right? Like you, you've you've at least encapsulated that that logic inside a single object, right? Right. I mean, it does get into like he 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 references SRP here. You know that view controller is responsible. F- the only its only responsibility is managing the table view controller, or sorry, the table view, right? And then the parent view controller is only concerned about managing its child view controllers and handling the c- communication between them. I mean, not not really and. I mean, that's essentially all it does is it, it, it communicates with – it provides communication between the child view controllers. So what's the best way to communicate back up from a child to a parent? Delegation? Yeah, or – isn't there a parent? There's a parent view controller. Yeah, but then you're going to have to cast it to the type of your parent, which is a, l- sure. a little ugly. Yeah. I'm not sure how many times it would need to communicate back up the stack. I mean, I'm sure there's times. I'm positive of it. I mean, in the case oh, of the table, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if you select a cell and the container has to act in some way, like manipulating its view its children like how do how do we bubble that back up yeah like transitioning from a master to a detail view i mean you just need to get like you wouldn't need to cast in that specific case and that's not super awesome that you would need to do parent view controller self dot parent view controller dot navigation controller feels like it's breaking the law of demeter yeah, that's terrible. I mean, you could add a category method on UIV controller that gives it. Ar- I mean, it, it at least get around that. Yeah, so you could say, um, you know, have a method on view controller that's push. Yeah, push view so it's like, kind of thing. oh, oh, I see what you're saying. You know, okay. just I, I, all it would do is is it would wrap, you know, self dot navigation controller. Well, then you could just use a protocol for that. Yeah. And just say that your parent conforms to this protocol. Yeah. But now we're kind of back to delegation. Things to think about. I think it's an interesting pattern. I think it's an interesting concept and pattern. I think it's one that's probably underused and underthought about just because the view controller containment stuff is just relatively new. And I think the the just single, you know, one view controller per screen is was around long enough and is simple enough to understand that that's the pattern that's going to get the most attention. Like I never, I never immediately go like, and maybe I should, but I never immediately jump to view controller containment when I notice I have like two views and maybe that does actually make more sense in 
terms of SRP, right? That maybe I should focus more on having a single view controller that's worried about like the state of the current screen and then child view controllers that control specific views. I think, I just think that would be kind of an interesting pattern to try using, you know, is to do like a, instead of one view controller per screen, one view controller per view per, per, you know, logical grouped view. So it's not like every button has to have a view controller, but like, you know, a table view has a view controller, a header view has a view controller, that kind right. of thing. I was just going to say, if you end up having, like, more than one method in your view controller that's managing the view, yeah. then that's a good time to maybe pull yeah. that out into its own controller. Yeah. I think it's interesting to think about. I, I, I'm going to try to probably try to play with it. Well, all right, then. Yeah. Edward. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd like uh, – in fact, I'd like to hear more about – how he's been managing or if anyone else is using this pattern, like you doing the stuff that we were talking about, man, it, you know, talking back, talking your way back up the stack. He actually says something, doesn't he? So he, he injects the behavior for what should happen when you tap a cell. Yeah. Not immediately clear yeah. how he's doing that. If it's with blocks or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So more information on that, like how the, how the, you know, how to get the view controllers to talk to each other, especially back up the stack, right? Because down is easy. Talking to the child view controllers is easy, but talking back up the stack to get to the navigation controller, to get to the parent view controller, that kind of stuff would be interesting to hear about how people are doing that. Cool. Yeah. Wrap it up. Button it up. Did we use that in the last one? Probably. (laughs) I say that a lot. (laughs) All right. So uh, we'll have the show notes for this episode up at learn.thoughtbot.com slash build phase slash 10. We're in double digits. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's a big deal. Yeah. And as always, we want you to get in touch, correct us, tell us that we're dumb, teach us new things. You can email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or hit us up on app.net or Twitter at buildphase. And this episode was produced by Chad Pytel, recorded and edited by Mike Manor. <laughs>